It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other wonderful links in the description under Linktree. This week's episode, The Hans Niemann Chess Cheating Scandal. All right, this was a really interesting one to look into because I don't know that much about chess, so it was a lot of fun to read up on all these different topics. And I found myself going down all sorts of really interesting rabbit holes that I never thought uh, was I would be interested in. It's pretty nerdy stuff, so <laughs> bear with me. If you're not into nerdy stuff, then hang on. <laughs> so anyways, this before we get started, this is an ongoing story. So this is still developing and new information is coming out periodically. And also, um, none of this is proven. It's all sort of up in the air. So anything I say is not necessarily fact. And also, like I said, I don't know that much about chess, so I might get some of the details incorrect. And if I do, and you're a chess guy or gal, then please feel free to let me know. Shoot me an email or get in touch with me on Discord or whatever and let me know when I get it where I got it wrong. Otherwise, let's get into it. So this is an interesting story about a grandmaster in chess named Hans Niemann, who has been accused of cheating by the current world chess champion, Magnus Carlsen. Hans is a chess grandmaster ranked fifth junior in the world and 35th of all players. Now, there's a lot of people that play chess, and I've played some of them. (laughs) But uh, to be ranked number 35th in the world That's a pretty good accomplishment. He's only age 19, by the way, so he's a chess prodigy. His current ranking, Hans's current ranking, is 2607. So we'll talk a little bit about the chess rankings in a bit, but uh, I guess I'll do that right now. So all competitive chess players have a rating, and it's an ELO rating system. The system was created by a physicist named Arpod ELO, ELO, And that's where the name of the system comes from. Now, it was created for chess to improve on the previous ranking system, the Harkness system. And they also adopted this system for sports, pool, board games, esports, all sorts of stuff. So it's it's widely used. Now, the way it works in general is when two people play, the winner's score goes up and the loser's score goes down. If a higher rated player wins against a lower rated player, that player only gets a few points. But if the lower player wins an upset victory, they get more points for beating a higher rated player. In the case of a draw, which happens pretty frequently in chess, the lower ranked player also gets a few points because the higher ranked player should have been able to beat them. The system is not an absolute measurement of a player's skill, rather that it's a representation of the probable outcome when two players meet. For example, if a player is 100 points higher, they should win 5 out of 8 matches. If they're 200 points higher, they should win 3 out of 4 matches. 
So there's a lot of mathematical stuff that goes into the system, which is a little beyond the scope of this episode, but there's lots of good stuff, articles and stuff, if you want to read up more about the ELO rating system. It gets kind of complicated, at least for me, because I don't know that much math. All right, now the downside of the system is that players with a high rating can choose easy opponents or opponents with a weakness that they know they can exploit, or they can just stay inactive to keep their rating intact. And there are, there are other ways of gaming the system, but again, that's a little beyond the scope, so we won't go too much into that. But for ch specific to chess, um, the number of players over 2,700 have increased over time. And there's a reason for that, again, which we won't go into because it goes, you know, it's a tangent that goes a little far off topic for what we're doing in this episode. But like, for example, um, Bobby Fischer, who some consider to be like the best champion ever, and uh, it, that's debatable. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying some people consider him to be. He, I don't think he ever got over 2,800, but he was the first to crack 2,700. Now, just as a sort of a reference scale Players at 1,200 are pretty competent amateurs. That would be your local club players who basically know how to move, know some basic strategies and everything, but they're not like world beaters or anything. Now, 1,800 to 2,000, that's when you start to get into like the, the range of what you'd consider like really good amateurs. Uh, 2,200 and above, that's like your national players who can compete at the national level. 24 and above is like international master and 2,500 is grandmaster. 2,700 and above is super grandmaster. And there's only a handful of people in the world at 2,700 and above. So above 20, that's, you're talking about the best of the best right there. Your elite players. Now these are just ballparks and the scale is sort of different depending on who you ask or, you know, what website you're reading. That's just a basic ballpark to get an idea of what we're talking about. Magnus Carlsen is the current world champion with a rating of 2852. Number two is I-E-N-E-P-O-M-N-I-A-C-H-T-C-H-I. -E -E <laughs> I apologize to Ian. I can't pronounce that last name. Nepomniachtichi, I guess. I don't know. So he's in second place with a rating of 2793. Carlson also held the highest rating ever, highest peak rating at 2882, just so we know what we're talking about here. Now, like I said, Bobby Fischer was the first player ever to crack 2700 and also the youngest grandmaster at age 15 until that record was broken in 1991. Back then, it was a little different. You couldn't just go play anybody anywhere at any time, like using the internet and things. It was a lot harder, especially because of the Cold War. Uh, there was a Cold War on, and Bobby Fischer was an American player. Most of the good players were in Russia, and it was very difficult for him to just go play other players. You couldn't just go play the best players in the world. It was a lot more difficult to do back then, and that might be one reason why his rating never, you know, why he never cracked 2800 level or whatever, as far as I was able to determine. In any case, he was not able to get above 2800. But that's a whole other episode, the whole Cold War chess thing and all that stuff and how he actually did play a Russian and was, uh, he was kicked out of the U S because of it. It was, it was a whole thing. That's a whole other episode. Uh, maybe a little too nerdy for this show, although I do find it interesting. All right. Now 
Fisher was a, I just want a little side note on him. He was a true prodigy, probably the original chess prodigy. Maybe not. I don't know. But he won the U.S. championship at age 14, and he won this tournament a record eight times and is the only player ever to win it 11 matches to zero. And I just like, dude, when <laughs> when I was 14 years old, I was basically equivalent to like, you know, you go to the zoo and you see those chimps picking their butt and throwing poop at each other. That was me at age 14. And here this this guy, and this is typical, I guess, of chess uh, prodigies nowadays. There's not that many of them, but I guess they do reach heights, you know, international master heights and all these championships at young ages, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, which I find just completely mind-boggling that they're able to do this at such young age. Anyways, Hans Niemann started learning chess at the age of eight, and he showed a lot of talent early on. For example, on December 14th, or in December 2014, at age 11, he won the Mechanics Institute Chess Club Tuesday Night Marathon, and he was the youngest winner ever, and he was awarded the title of USCF Master. He has a lot of chess accomplishments in chess, which I won't go over all of them because it would take quite a long time. But for example, he he had a 29-0 victory in the 2019 Grand Nationals, and he won the 2019 Foxwoods Open Blitz Tournament with a perfect score of 10-0. Pretty cool, right? So he's a chess prodigy. All right, so he's an extremely talented young player, but the controversy began. Of course, we wouldn't be talking about him on this show if it was just if he was just a chess prodigy. So it began in the uh, twenty in the third round of the twenty twenty two Sinkfield S I N Q U E F I E L D so Sinkfield Cup when he beat the reigning world champion Carlson playing as black. Now, the reason why this is so crazy is because Carlson was rated over a hundred points more than him. Remember we talked about that earlier. So just by rating alone, you could say Carlson should have won, but also playing as black. That's insane because that's actually a disadvantage. White gets to move their pieces first in chess. Sorry for anybody who already knows how to play chess. This is obvious, but for those of you who don't, um, that that's a huge advantage. That's basically a half of move, half a tempo advantage. They would call it, I think, or a one move advantage for the rest of us. But uh, that's pretty significant at the highest levels. For most of us, it wouldn't matter. You know, if I'm playing my friends, it like the difference, like a three pawn difference, is meaningless when I'm playing my friends. But at the top level, even a one pawn difference can be the difference between winning or losing or drawing a game. It could be decisive. So a lot of players uh, will play black. They might try to draw the game instead of win the game because they're at such a disadvantage. So for example, if you look up stats on chessgames.com, the 2015 database shows a 10% win difference between black and white. That's pretty significant. Other people will debate whether there is an actual advantage at all or if it's just psychological, but in any case, it's perceived as being an advantage. Now, this is a, was a monumental win for Hans Niemann. Um, it was it's right up there with one of the big greatest upsets in history. Think you know Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson. Like people were floored when he won this game. Nobody thought it was even possible for him to beat the reigning world champion. All right, now before we get further into this event, let's talk a little bit about computers and chess. So it used to be chess, they're not that great at com- or computers are not that great at chess. I remember I have like I had a game, a chess game for the Nintendo, 8-bit Nintendo, for example, 
uh, it was not that hard to beat the computer. You know, whether that's by design, probably it was because I'm not that good at chess. Who knows? But it, back in the day, computers were not that good at chess. But that has changed over time. So the most famous case of man versus machine was probably IBM's Deep Blue versus Gary Kasparov, who was actually the world champion at the time. Now, Kasparov is considered to be one of the best players ever, which, you know, kind of goes without saying. If, he was, if he's a former chess world champion, all of the world champions are considered the best, one of the best ever. So it's sort of stating the obvious, I suppose. But he had the record for the highest rating until Magnus Carlsen beat that record in 2013. He holds some records, such as the most consecutive professional victories and 255 months ranked as number one. He's like really good at chess, and he was the world champion from 1985 to 2000. 1985 to 2000. That is just an incredible run as champion. Unprecedented. Anyways, Deep Blue was an improvement over the previous generation of Deep Thought, which Kasparov had beaten in 1989. Deep Blue could analyze over 20 moves ahead, and I couldn't find the exact number, but millions and millions of possible combinations every second it could calculate. So they played, Kasparov played Deep Blue in 1996, and he won. Uh, he, they do like in chess, often they'll do a series of matches. They don't just play one match to win everything or one game to win the match. They'll play, let's say, a series of six. And in this case, Kasparov won four games to two. But they had a rematch in 1997, and Deep Blue won and was the first computer ever to beat a reigning world champion in a match under standard tournament time controls. There's a lot of different variations of chess. You know, there's blitz chess, there's different time chess, time controls. There's a lot of different variations on the game using the standard moveset. And then there's uh, Fisher chess, which is a whole other thing. That's where you randomize the pieces. Yeah, that's <laughs> Bobby Fisher got was so good at chess. He's like, okay, let's do, let's do a game where we just randomize where the pieces are in the back row. So we actually have to think a little bit more and we can't just use our previous skill set, you know, the moves that we know already. So anyways, there's some controversy to the win. Deep Blue was programmed specifically to beat Kasparov and the program was allowed to be modified in between games as well. Now, Kasparov, after he lost the match in 1997, he accused IBM of cheating. He thought that a human had aided the machine during the game to improve its chances to win. Now, this has never been verified to my knowledge. I couldn't find anything online or, you know, anywhere. And there are convincing arguments on both sides. But basically, Kasparov made an unpredictable move that should have thrown off the computer. But the computer was able to compensate in a way that shouldn't have been possible. So basically the way the computer worked back then, it was a fairly stupid machine. It only used opening books and moves that had been pre-programmed into it. And it used a brute force method, basically. It's, so it went through many variations to find the best one. So there's there's a lot of details to this particular event. But the, the accus, there's accusations that IBM spied on Kasparov in between games in order to figure out what his strategy was so that they could program those moves into the machine. That's a whole other conspiracy in and of itself, so I won't go into it, but there does seem to be evidence that this happened. Now, some people have analyzed these games, the play by Deep Blue, uh, and I, I can't do chess analysis, that's way over my head, but people have analyzed this and they say that, 
Yeah, the way that Deep Blue played in these games does look like a human was controlling the play in certain situations, and it didn't look like the computer was playing all of the all of the moves. But it's all sort of speculative, and I have no way to evaluate this myself. It's just somebody else's word versus whatever. So the the reason why IBM might have cheated was because they had a lot to gain. The publicity from their machine beating the world champion has huge implications for like artificial intelligence and would have been a significant milestone. So they definitely had the motive to cheat. And they also, there's also speculation that would have greatly affected the stock price. And you could look at the stock price. The historical data is there. And um, for sure, when the victory happened, it made international news for sure. But looking at the stock price, the stock price did go up probably about 20% following the victory. But if you look at the chart, the stock was already in a strong uptrend. And in order to determine what effect this event had on the stock price, it would require a much deeper analysis than I have time for in this episode. And that's, um, it's, it's sort of a minor detail that doesn't matter that much. That's why I didn't spend the time doing it, but I mean, I could definitely do it. I'm I know how to do that kind of stuff. It just would take a lot of time to read into that and look at all the data. So I, I skipped over that, but the stock price did go up, but it was already going up anyways. So who knows? In any case, it did seem like IBM had certain unfair advantages. For example, they were able to study Kasparov's games you know, because all of his games were public record. All chess games that are played in tournaments are public records. So you can just go look at these matches and analyze them and you can find mistakes that people make and you can find weaknesses in their game that you can exploit. But they, the team of IBM did not allow Kasparov access to the computer's most recent games. That's a huge advantage to be able to exploit Kasparov's weaknesses, but not give Kasparov the same opportunity. So he was also denied the access to the computer's logs after the fact that would have probably said whether or not a computer was moving or if the computer was making those decisions. After the game, IBM refused a rematch and retired Deep Blue. So, um, you know, Kasparov says this is covering up cheating. And at the end of the day, we don't know for sure, but it's pretty suspicious that they refused a rematch and they didn't allow him access to the logs and all this other stuff. So it's... I mean, we could do a whole episode just on the whole deep blue thing, but that's like really, really nerdy. So I don't know if people want to actually hear that, but I find it completely fascinating. And uh, that's so we'll just leave it there, though, is just we don't know for sure, but it looks kind of sus, you know. So uh, either way, whatever, the point is that a computer beat the best chess player in the world in 1997. That happened in 97 and computers have only gotten better since then. These days, There are chess engines that are so good that you can run them on any cell phone. They don't take a whole lot of computing power, and they're so good they can beat any player in the world. No human player can beat the current engines like uh, there's, there's a bunch of them. There's a ton of them. I looked up to try to find which one is the best, and it turns out that there isn't any single best one. They're all good at different things, but Stockfish and Komodo seem to be two of the better ones that a lot of people referenced. So if you're curious and you want to look into chess engines yourself, I believe Stockfish is a free open source engine. You can just go download it and play with it, you know, if you want to get crushed by a computer at chess. <laughs> so, you know, if that's a that's a lot of fun to do for me, but 
you know, any computer will crush me at chess because I'm not that good. But let's look into a little bit more into cheating in chess using computers specifically. So you could do this using a cell phone very easily. If you're playing an online match, for example, all you need is your cell phone <laughs> and, and the computer, and you could just enter your opponent's moves into the cell phone and then just beat them. You know, you can analyze the game in real time. And as long as it's off camera, nobody would know that you did it, right? Except if you're playing like a grandmaster and you're just some average slob, it's pretty suspicious. But anyways, um, you wouldn't even necessarily need a computer to cheat. There are examples where people cheated without computers. For example, there was a coach that signaled the player what piece to move based on where he stood in the room. So if he wanted the player to move the bishop, he would just stand in the corner of the room. And with, with high-level chess, they don't necessarily, these players are all so good, they don't necessarily need to have their hand held for every single move. All they would need is a clue. Oh, move my bishop? Okay, that clue helps me find the best move that I couldn't have otherwise seen and helps me to move that piece with less time analyzing the game, which saves them time later on because these games are all under time controls. So you only have a limited amount of time to analyze and move your pieces. So even just giving them a simple hint like that gives them a huge, huge advantage. There are a lot of variations on this sort of thing. You could have a code using the names of sports teams or perhaps types of food, you know, like your coach could be sitting and if they buy a hot dog from the concessions, that could mean, I don't know, move your castle or something. And they, all they have to do is be in the stands eating a hot dog. And you would be able to see that from where you're sitting as a player. There's, I mean, there's a million things you could do to cheat. Just, just use your imagination. You know, you could use hand signals or winking your eyes in most co Morse code or whatever. You wouldn't even need electronics to cheat. There's so many different ways to do it. And there, you know, if you've ever seen a stage magician and just how incredibly talented they are at like sleight of hand type stuff, it, the sky's the limit. You know, there's a million ways to do it. So th that's just without electronics. But using electronic chess engines, um, brings a whole new dimension to cheating in chess. I read some discussions online and chess players say that you wouldn't need help on every move, even getting help on a few key moves in the game, just two or three moves. If you got chess engines helping you on just a couple of key moves, that would be enough to raise your ELO rating a few hundred points. Now keep in mind going from an ELO rating of 200 or I mean, of let's say 2,400 to 2,600 that brings you from being a really good international player to being one of the best players in the world, right? A couple hundred points is significant at the highest levels of competition. So you don't need every move from the computer. You just need one or two moves a match in order to crush your opponent because that's how good these people are at this level. Remember I said at this level, just a one pawn difference can decide the game. So the, the play is very tight at these, at these levels. So also at these levels, you're getting good enough. These players are good enough to where the coach, <laughs> if you have a coach, you know, these players are probably the coaches. They may not have coaches anymore, but the coach is not necessarily going to be good enough to help you. So that's why they might also want to use a chess program. So like I said, they can beat anybody. Um, there have been prominent cases of people being caught cheating in the past. So there is a precedent for this. So the, you might ask yourself, it's just a game. Why would they cheat on a game? Well, the reason for that is there can be a lot of money at stake. One common tactic uh, is 
to hide a cell phone in the bathroom and to consult a chess engine during your potty breaks. So I guess chess matches can go on for a long time, for hours even, I guess. I don't know, depending on the time controls. But I read through some discussions between chess players, and some people said that they get nervous during matches and that they have to use the bathroom a lot. And one player said, particularly during like the first match of a tournament, they get really worried and nervous, and then they have to go they have to go potty a lot, you know, nervous bladder kind of a thing. That's a real thing, you know? And they said they were worried people thought they were cheating. So I guess what people will do is they will um, hide an electronic device in the bathroom somewhere, and then they will consult that during potty breaks. So I found one example on chess.com, one article talking about a prominent example of somebody getting caught red-handed. Paul Selian Mihalach, M-I-H-A-L-A-C-H-E, apologies to Paul, I can't pronounce anybody's name apparently, Mihalachi was competing in the Romanian chess championship and had already lost a bunch of games. The contest arbiter, who is the person in charge of finding cheaters or preventing it from happening, checked the restroom after noticing that Paul took more bathroom breaks than normal. They found a cell phone in the bathroom that didn't have a screen screen lock. Like, come on, dude, put a screen lock on your damn phone, right? <laughs> so on the phone, they found that the that Paul's current game was open in a chess app using, using the Stockfish engine to analyze the game on the move that they were like at. So they're on move 15 and that's where the engine was at, you know? <laughs> and um, it's, it's funny because that's like, lock your damn screen, dude, right? Uh, a lot of, so a lot, it's not unusual to have that software on your phone because a lot of pretty much every player out there is going to be using this sort of software to analyze their games after the fact to find where they could have played better or mistakes that they made or whatever. It's very, very common. Having that on your phone is not suspicious in and of itself, but analyzing a current game is pretty, so that you're pretty much cheating at that point, right? This is very suspicious. So the phone was also logged into Paul's Google account. It's, this is pretty much as red-handed. This is as open as shut as it gets. Now, <laughs> it gets kind of weird, though, because at the time, Paul had an ELO rating of 1,700, and he was playing against somebody with a 1,200 rating. Anybody 500 points above their opponent should be able to win easily. They should be able to crush their opponent at 500 points extra. It'd be like taking candy from a baby. Uh, ELO, remember, it's based around the chances to win, not necessarily absolute skill. I kind of, I found, so I found an ELO odds calculator on wismuth.com. According to the calculator, the chance to win one game, if you have 500 point advantage, is about 95%. And the chance to win a six game series would be 0.999969. So the chances, in other words, the chances that Paul would lose the game would be zero, essentially zero. He should have been able to crush this opponent without even trying. So why was he cheating against a weaker opponent that should have stood no chance whatsoever to beat him? We could only speculate on that, but what comes to mind to me is that his rating wasn't really 1,700. In fact, it might not have even been 1,200. He, he probably cheated his way all the way up to 1,700, and his real rating might have been something like 900 and 900. That's like a kid who doesn't really know how to play that much. That's not that good of a rating at all. Like that's somebody who just learned how to move the pieces. So, <laughs> you know, like I said earlier, 1200 is competent, but that's not that good. 1200 in tournament play is not that good. No insult to any of you out there who are 1200 players. I'm not trying to 
you know, talk shit or anything. Um, I myself, like I had a, a program called Chess Master that has computer opponents that like are rated, which is actually pretty cool because if you're learning how to play the game and you want to play computer opponents, it'll have a com- it'll have an opponent who's rated like six or seven hundred who basically essentially just moves the pieces at random with no strategy whatsoever, and then you can play opponents going up all the way up to like grandmasters and highly rated opponents or whatever. And when I was beating these opponents, I don't know how accurate the ratings are in the program, but I got to the point where I was able to beat an opponent rated 1200 and that I just had was dabbling and I had to actually work at it to get to that level a little bit. You do have to use some strategies and stuff, but it wasn't like I was really good at the game or anything. So 1200, not that good. So I'm really shocked that this guy would cheat against a 1200 player. It's just, it's crazy. So I think that he was probably not a 1700. Now, here's the problem with cheating. If you get caught once, every game you ever played is now suspect. Every single game. Your rating is suspect. If that player needs to cheat, then how good are they really? They're probably not that good. So if we have a player that's rated 2500 and one of the best in the world, if they get caught cheating... Now, everything they've ever done is now put into question. Are they really a 2,500 player or did they only achieve that rating by cheating? So this is the question that we have to ask ourselves when somebody gets caught cheating. So there've been plenty of other cases of cheating. In 2015, Grandmaster Gaios Nigel, I don't know how to say this, G-A-I-O-Z-N-I-G-A-L-I-D-Z-E, Nigaladze, uh, sorry, ap- apologies. If you listen to the show before, then you know that I suck at pronouncing stuff. I should have looked them up ahead of time. Anyways, so the grandma- that particular grandmaster was caught stashing an iPod in the bathroom and it was logged into a social media site under his name and his current game was being analyzed on the device, just like the previous one we talked about. He denied that it was his, but come on, you know. He was expelled from the competition, banned from competing for three years, and his grandmaster status was revoked. I guess there's certain things you have to do to achieve a grandmaster status. Getting a certain rating isn't enough. You have to actually compete and and do certain things in competitions to earn that. So it's kind of a big deal to get that revoked. So again, it's the same thing in this case, though, is how much of his rating was actually based on cheating. Even if this was his first time cheating, that puts his whole chess career into question, you know? So it's just, I don't know. I don't see why people do it. It's just not worth it if you get caught. But uh, you might suppose there, there's a lot of other cases. Those are just a couple of highlights, but you might suppose that not 100% of cheaters get caught. In fact, you might speculate that only a small percentage of them are getting caught and that chess cheating in the chess world is way more widespread than you might think. I hope that's not the case, but that's sort of kind of what it looks like is there's a lot of cheaters out there and as technology gets better and better, it becomes easier and easier to cheat, right? Now, tournaments have stepped up their anti-cheating efforts, but those efforts will always lag behind the creativity of the cheaters. So there are a lot of other cases. One One that I'll talk about is Vladimir Kramnik allegedly visited the bathroom 56 times during his match against uh, Veselin Topolov during the 2006 World Championships. This was a huge deal at the time and is known as Toilet Gate. So if you Google Toilet Gate chess, 
you get a bunch of stuff on that. I mean, we could do a whole other, whole other episode just on that case. That's a whole other thing that I, I won't go on that tangent because uh, Ether wants to go play in the snow again. So I'll try to get through this as quickly as possible. It's uh, yeah, it's snowing here in Northern California. It doesn't snow here very often, maybe once every 10 years. And that's why I postponed recording on Friday night. And that's why I'm doing it today is because yesterday we went out to play in the snow all day to take advantage of that. And so I recorded Saturday instead. And that's probably ETA is at work. So unfortunately he couldn't join us. His computer is probably still broken anyways. So who knows? But anyways, uh, the, I talked a little bit earlier. I mentioned about people's incentive to cheat. My guess is that the main incentive is money. So even regional competitions have thousands of dollars in prize money and the larger tournaments can have hundreds of thousands of dollars in prize money. One I read about the, in fact, the one we're taught, the event we're talking about in the cup where um, Neiman got accused of cheating that had, I think something like a $320,000 prize Magnus Carlson, the current champion supposedly won about $560,000 in prizes during 2022 and I saw an online competition from chess.com had a million dollar prize. That's a lot of money and that's a lot of motive for people to cheat. All right, so let's get into the current scandal in question that is ongoing. And as one per- person put it in a discussion, is cheating with the asshole possible? <laughs> it's uh, okay, so yeah, butt stuff in this one. Neiman rose, Hans Neiman rose through the chess ranks quickly. So he started at age 10, he was already rated about 2000 and he's been a prominent player ever since he has a Twitch streaming channel and he has played many games on the popular chess.com platform, which hosts online tournaments in 2019. He won the chess.com chess kid games with 20 straight victories. And in 2019, he won the Foxwood open. Like I said, 10 to zero 2019 grand nationals, 29 to zero. And by 2020, he became a grandmaster. Now, this is a truly remarkable chess career. He's one of the best players in the world and has an unprecedented rise. Now, some people look at this and they're like, hmm, that's a little suspicious for him to rise so quickly and to win so many games without being defeated. It's kind of unprecedented. He went to 2,500 to 2,600 ranking in just three months, for example. That's, that's kind of unheard of. Like, I, I don't know that anybody's really ever done that. Maybe there's a case. I don't know. So it, he's beyond a chess prodigy. And his quick rise is suspicious to some people. Also, he did it later than chess prodigies. Most chess prodigies have that run when they're much younger. Let's say from age 12 to 14 or 15. He had this run much later than most chess prodigies, which some people also find unusual and suspicious. So there was a specific game in question that is sort of at the center of this controversy. Now, like I said earlier, it's the S-I-N-Q-U-E Field Sink Field Cup in September of 2022. Hans Neiman, as I said, who was playing black, defeated the current world champion, Magnus Carlsen, who is considered one of the best players ever, again, world champion and all that, He defeated him in the third round playing black. This broke Carlson's 53 game unbeaten record. So not only is Carlson the best player in the world currently, he's when I say best player ever, like I could go into his career. There's, it would take a long time. It would take multiple episodes to talk about all of his accomplishments. I'm sure, but he is really good. So like I said, when he was defeated by Hans Neiman, 
this was this is one of the greatest upsets ever in the history of anything. It just it was people were blown away, right? This win put Neiman over the 2700 rating for the first time. Now, after losing, Carlson dropped out of the tournament. And while he didn't make any accusations at the time, dropping out of a tournament like this was a pretty big deal. It's unprecedented in chess to, to, for somebody to drop out of a tournament like this. Such a, This is a very major tournament. It never happens. So this dropping out like this was basically the same thing as accusing Neiman of cheating. Now, this, like I said, this is the first time Carlson ever dropped out of a tournament. It's crazy. Gary Kasparov commented on this and said that there was no similar precedent in the last 50 years of chess. You know, Kasparov, remember the previous world champion. So the two met again during an online tournament, Carlson and Neiman, and Carlson resigned the game after one move, once again fueling accusations of cheating. Now, at this level, you can't just come out and say, this guy's cheating, because that's like uh, libel or slander. I forget which one. I always get them mixed up. But you're not, you can't, without proof, it's kind of illegal to just come out and say they're cheating. So instead, he just resigned his game after one move, and that's basically saying he's cheating. There's all, The only reason he would say that is because he was cheating. Carlson is so good at chess, he's not going to... He's not going to shy away from a fight. He's not going to turn down a match. He's not afraid of playing anybody. He's he's the best guy in the world. So the fact that he resigned the game speaks volumes. So at first he said, people can draw their own conclusions, and they certainly have. I have to say I'm very impressed by Neiman's play, and I think his mentor, Maxim Dolgy, D-L-U-G-Y, must be doing a great job. So Maxim, Maxim Dolgy is a player that had previously been banned from chess.com for cheating. So he's basically saying that Maxim taught Neiman how to chat, how to cheat at chess. That's as pretty much as a direct accusation as you can get without actually accusing him of cheating. And it's a pretty good burn, I must say. Pretty sick burn there. Eventually, Carlson did release a statement on Twitter after after a little bit. I mean, this blew up the chess world. People were just going ape over this. So I won't read the whole statement because it's kind of long, but here are some excerpts. I know my actions have frustrated many in the chess community. I'm frustrated. I believe that cheating in chess is a big deal and an existential threat to the game. I also believe that chess organizers should consider increasing security measures. I believe Neiman has cheated more and more recently than he has publicly admitted. His over-the-board progress has been unusual, and throughout our game in the Sinkfield Cup, I had the impression that he wasn't tense or even fully concentrating on the game in critical positions, while outplaying me as black in a way I think only a handful of players can do. I don't want to play against people that have cheated repeatedly in the past, because I don't know what they are capable of doing in the future. That's a pretty direct accusation. And if you've ever seen like, okay, so I admit I'm a big giant fat nerd and I actually have watched chess games before, although it's not something I do regularly. And these people at this level, when they're considering a move, they're analyzing many different possibilities because like I said, just a one pawn difference can make the difference between winning and losing. So these people are thinking and concentrating very deeply. Like I've read about a case of, uh, a tactic, it's not technically cheating, but there was a chess tactic where um, I read about this in a book by a chess player named Josh, Josh Watskin, and 
his player would tap, take like an extra chess piece and just tap the table to make like a little subtle tapping noise. And just that extra noise would ruin people's concentration and give that player the edge, you know? Now, personally, I think if you need a tactic like that to win, you're actually only hurting yourself in the long run because sooner or later, you're going to run up against a player who that doesn't work on and then you're going to be fucked. So it's not a good tactic overall. But that just goes to show you just how hard these people concentrate when they're playing. So the fact that he didn't appear to be concentrating at all, he was just sort of casually moving his pieces, not necessarily proof of anything, but maybe a little suspicious, right? So anyways... The, the main problem with this accusation is that Carlson doesn't actually provide any proof of cheating. It's just speculation. He's basically going on his gut instinct. So if Neiman was never caught with the old cell phone in the bathroom trick, was he cheating? I mean, it's possible. If he had an accomplice, it would be very easy to do. For instance, he could use a device in a shoe that was small enough to not set off any metal detectors or anything. And the device could be hidden just about anywhere on his person. It wouldn't have to be a shoe. It could be taped under his armpit or, you know, hidden on his person anywhere, you know, and it would, the device could like vibrate or tap to indicate what move to make, you know, like just a little metal switch that could vibrate or tap you on your skin somewhere and you could feel it. A shoe would be convenient, but it could be anywhere. Now, an accomplice could be watching the game from anywhere and they could send the next move using any sort of code, such as Morse code. It wouldn't have to be Morse code specifically, but that would be, it's easy, it's readily available, it's not that hard to learn. Now, chess uses a very succinct notation system. A move is indicated with just like three digits. For example, NF6 tells the player to move his knight to column F, row 6. In Morse code, this would be dash dot, dot dot dash dot, dash dot 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 dot. Boom, right there. Super easy to transmit that not complicated at all, right? And Morse code is readily available to everybody, or they could just make up their own code. It wouldn't matter, right? Any code would work as long as they could transmit that information. And we're only talking about three characters of information here, because the reason you only need three characters of information is because generally speaking, you only need the piece or the square that the piece is moving to and that piece. So for example, most of the time, that knight is only going to be able to move, one knight will only be able to move to F6, right? The other knight won't be anywhere near there. And even if that knight, both the knights could move to the same spot, it'll be pretty obvious which move is better to a player at this level. So you only need just the square and the piece. It's pretty simple, pretty simple notation. In fact, entire games, you can look up entire games of chess are notated in just like a little paragraph of, you know, NF6, or, you know, pawn to whatever, pawn to C7 or whatever, you know, like just a whole little tiny paragraph notates an entire game. So <laughs> the reason why this story initially caught my attention, I actually originally used it, I did a shorter bit on this story as part of the strange news type of style of episode that I do on the Patreon bonus episodes. And what caught my attention originally was I saw a news headline that that's a chess player had cheated using something in their butt. So this appears to be a story that originated on Reddit or maybe 4chan or some, you know, some internet forums. And it appears to be a joke theory to explain how he was cheating. Cause again, he wasn't caught cheating. So we don't know for sure how he achieved it or if he cheated at all, but 
it appears to be a joke that somebody came up with that some that hit them that sort of trickled down or trickled up to the mainstream media headlines. <laughs> it's just hilarious to me. It's a joke explanation that that the mainstream media picked up on. So for example, one headline is the chess grandmaster anal bead conspiracy that's happening right now explained from kodaku.com. Not exactly mainstream, I know, but just an example. Or chess sex toy cheating scandal explained. World number one Magnus Carlsen Hans Niemann in wild sports controversy. And I think that was cbssports.com. That's a major outlet. So news outlets love themselves some clickbait. And cheating with your butt is probably the best clickbait they've ever found ever, right? So they, it's all over. You can find a ton of articles about this. Um, I, I don't think there's too much to this butt stuff, but it's just hilarious. It's silly and fun. Just picturing your, just picture somebody cheating with their butt. And, you know, if, if agent ETA was on able to make this episode, I'm sure he would have a field day with this. Right. But this, this particular theory, I just, I don't really buy it because I don't know. You could cheat with a vibrating device that they make vibrating devices that are incredibly small that you could conceal just about anywhere. Putting it in your butt is, it's just very impractical, you know? So I don't really think that if Neiman was cheating, I don't think he was cheating with his butt because it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You know, like these games can go on for a long time. Sooner or later, you're going to have to go to the bathroom and it just, you have to keep something in your butt for a long time. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. It would be so much easier to put it in your shoe or something. I don't know, <laughs> but who knows? Um, it, it would, anything's possible, but this did have hilariously had real world consequences. I saw an article titled chess grandmaster accused of cheating has butt scanned before game. It is butt scanned. <laughs> this this particular headline was from the Huffington Post, but there are a few other, few other articles from other outlets. Now, like for example, chess champ gets butt inspected amid sex toy cheating claims. And this was, that one was the New York Post. And you, you could see, um, oh, oh yeah, another one, another headline, the chess cheating scandal has reached the point of butt scanning from SBNation.com. <laughs> you could see there's pictures in these articles of Hans Niemann and they show pictures of like an official holding some sort of scanner pointed right at his butt. And like, <laughs> this is crazy. Like what the hell is going on here? Like it, it's just, it's insane. And the, the strangest thing is that Neiman was suggested, sub, subjected to a butt scan that other players were not subjected to. And it, it just, it's a little weird. Uh, at least if you're going to scan Neiman's butt, at least make it fair and scan everybody's butt, you know, level playing field and all that. And it almost seems to me, it seems like those officials strongly believe that Neiman has cheated in games over the board games in the past. And they're just doing this to humiliate him at the very least, because they can't really ban him from the games without proof, but they're just sort of hassling him or giving him a hard time. I don't know. I mean, like I said earlier, it's, it's does not seem plausible to me that somebody would cheat with their, with a sex toy in their butt. It just seems ridiculous. So I don't know why they would scan his butt. Maybe somebody requested it. I, who knows? It's it. The whole thing is just really fucking weird. All right. <laughs> I mean, like, what are they scanning him with? So like, 
no, I, I've never used a butt toy, so I don't know firsthand, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But if you Google butt toys, they're made out of like silicone or plastic. Does that like a metal detector is not going to pick up on that? Do they have like a plastic detector? Is it an x-ray scanner that can get an x-ray image of his butt? Like what are they detecting it with? Like I think it would be really hard to scan somebody's butt and find the a toy in there. Now, I, I, I guess supposing that that's true, it might be actually a more plausible explanation than I first thought because like they're not going to do a cavity search, right? At least I find it unlikely because a lot of these tournaments have underage people, right? Imagine you're a parent, you bring your 12 to 14 year old child to a chess event and they're asking to do a cavity search on a child. That's not going to happen. That's never going to happen at a chess event. It's crazy. Insane. It's insane that we're even thinking about doing cavity searches on children at chess events to prove whether or not they have a vibrating toy in concealed in their body. <laughs> it's just, th that's why like this case just gets so fucking insane. That's why I'm doing this case. It's just so weird. Right. But so maybe it's the perfect crime. They're not going to be able to detect it. Now, what are they going to have to start putting people through like x-ray machines to scan for things in their cavities? This, this is fucking weird. Like what if they, they could swallow a device that would be inside of them that could vibrate that could happen. That's possible. That's theoretically possible. Right. And when we're talking about millions of dollars on the line, cause it's not just the prize money, right? It's not just the prize money we're talking about. If you're one of the best chess players in the world, you get sponsorships, you get magazine articles, you get to write books, you get appearances. It's if you get $500,000 in prize money that year, you probably get way more in sponsorships and deals and all sorts of things, right? So there's a lot of money at stake here. Would I swallow a cheating device or put a cheating device in my butt for millions of dollars? I can't say that I wouldn't. It would be, I would be very tempted, right? I mean, it's very tempting just on the surface of it. So who knows? I mean, who knows? <laughs> now, we, we don't have proof that Neiman cheated in this case or in, in any other or over the board case, but guess what? He has admitted to cheating in the past. Now in the past, he was actually banned from chess.com for cheating and the way chess.com handles these things. And by the way, just as an aside, chess.com, this is not like some little fly by night, fly by night browser game that one out of a million chess players actually uses. This is like the major platform for people playing chess, at least as far as I can find. So they actually caught him playing or they caught him cheating in the past and got him to admit it. But chess.com handles these things privately. They don't publicly accuse people of cheating for whatever reason they handle it privately. And if, if you read up on it, chess.com says the reason for this is is that they wanted to give young players the chance to redeem themselves, right? To stop cheating and come back and play the game the right way, I guess, is sort of what I found. So they caught him cheating, and he admitted to cheating. Admitted to cheating in online games. But he said it was only twice, and it was never for any game that had prize money, right? Well, turns out that chess.com after the scandal in 2022, chess.com the next day after Hans Niemann um, withdrew from the tournament, the next day, chess.com, I mean, Carlson, after Carlson uh, 
retired from that tournament. The next day, chess.com banned Neiman from their online platform, right? The next day. And without any like any proof or any reason, they just banned Neiman. And they they did that apparently because they had a million dollar tournament coming up that Neiman was in. And they wanted to make sure that the tournament was fair for everybody and all that stuff. So anyways, a little bit later, chess.com issued a 72-page report analyzing many of Neiman's games. And in the report, they said that Neiman likely cheated in over 100 online games, including games with cash prizes. The report says that Neiman... They, so I actually read through the report because I'm a big fat nerd. And they go through all sorts of statistics and analyses and all sorts of crazy stuff. So in the report... They say that Neiman is the fastest rising top player in classical over the board chess in modern history. And that's a little deceptive because modern history, the ELO rating was, you know, I forget the exact date, but that's a fairly recent thing in the grand scheme of chess, right? So if you go past what we would call modern history, the way they rated players was different. So it's not even really a fair comparison. But anyways, so you could say that he was the fastest rising top player in chess history, which is in and of itself a little suspicious, like I mentioned earlier. So here's a quote. We had concerns about the steep, inconsistent rise in Hans's rank set out in section seven of this report, like others in the broader chess community. So they're just saying other people have these concerns as well. It's not just us. So from... Another quote from section seven of that report is, while we do not doubt that Hans is a talented player, we note that his results are statistically extraordinary. Now, again, you have to be very careful how you word these things. They can't just come out and say, this proves that he cheated because it doesn't necessarily. But by calling his results statistically extraordinary, they're basically saying that we think he got these results by cheating. We think that his rise in ELO rating is from cheating. That's essentially what they're applying, implying here. The report outlines how they detect cheating, and one of the key things is that they put the games through a chess engine and compare the moves. Because remember, all of these competitive chess games, are the, the moves are stored. So you can actually go to, like, there's a, a place called Chessbase, um, C-H-E-S-S-B-A-S-E, and they have millions and millions of games in their database going back hundreds of years, millions of games. So every competitive game is recorded and put into a database. So they have a record of every single game. It's public history, public knowledge, I should say. You can go right now, you can go choose any chess player who has competed in a tournament, and you can find every single one of the games, their games that they've ever played publicly. Not private games behind closed doors. Of course, those would not be recorded, but every single game, you can find. It's pretty pretty crazy stuff, right? So anyways, they put these games through the chess programs. People and computers play games differently. A computer might make a move that seems nonsensical at first, but has some purpose that is difficult for a person to foresee or calculate. Now, for example, I was just looking at various chess games versus computers. I saw a game that was supposed to be between the reigning champion, Carlson, against a computer. And the computer began the game by moving its edge pawn, then moving out its castle, and then sacrificing the castle for no apparent reason, no apparent gain. The computer just wasted 
like one, two, three, four moves at the beginning of the game and sacrificed a castle. That's crazy. So moving your edge pawns is a wasted move, right? You're Because you're not capturing anything. You're not getting any advantage. You're not controlling any spaces that are important, at least not in the early game or during any part of the game, really. It's a bad move. It's a bad, bad move. And that's chess 101. Like, I'm really bad at chess, and I know that that's a bad move. You don't do that. You move your center pawns first, right? So the the, the chess program moved its edge pawn and moved its castle. Dude, if, if, a play, if a human player did that, they would lose the match if they're playing against an equal opponent, they would move, they would lose that match guaranteed. But not only did the computer sacrifice a castle, they also went on to win the game. Incredible. Unbelievable, right? But anyways, the report, the 72-page report has a lot of really interesting stuff in it, and it's too much to go over here. But uh, I highly recommend anybody interested in, you know, nerding out on this stuff, go read the report. The report's actually only set, it's only 20 pages, and then the remaining pages are like appendices and charts and graphs and things. So it's actually not as long as it sounds, uh, although it is 20 pages, it's still kind of long to read about this stuff. You have to be kind of a nerd, <laughs> but there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. But one thing is, is that it quotes various grandmasters speaking about these things as sort of like evidence. So what are the best players in the world think about what's going on here? So they have a quote from the Grandmaster Maxim Dlugi, who I think maybe we mentioned earlier, D-L-U, Maxim, M-A-X-I-M-D-L-U-G-Y. So he said, I watched him very carefully when he played this move, 32, knight to B7 against Sarek. He took 10 seconds. It was a 5 to 10 minute thing in my modest opinion, since the knight could take on F5 instead. But when he decided in 10 seconds, I was shocked. He doesn't know when to put on the theatrics. You have to be strong enough to do that. If I had this gadget, I would be willing, uh, not willing, sorry. If I had this gadget, I would be killing people left and right and nobody would know. This is the real danger because if a 2600 player has this thing, he knows exactly how to behave. He knows exactly when to think and he doesn't need to use it more than four times during a game. That's plenty to destroy anyone. At the critical junction, you switch it on and find out which way do I go. On this little nuance, I didn't see. Okay, fine. Boom. Goodbye. That's it. At that point, you may think for a long time, although you don't know the move. But this guy doesn't know. He's just a mechanically playing the first move of the computer. Everyone is a clown to him. He says, Kirill Georgiev put me in a bunker with him and I will destroy him. The guy has no moral compu- compunctions. He is an absolute he is absolutely immoral and sorry for some of the strange sentence structures there this guy's uh not a native english speaker but yeah basically he's saying that he watched a game where neiman beat sarek a guy named sarek who i'm not familiar with but he he was moving his pieces too quickly normally it would take a lot longer to calculate those moves but he was just sort of doing it without even thinking about it implying that he was cheating right so that's i mean a chess expert a grandmaster saying that, yeah, this guy is super suspicious. Again, not evidence of cheating, not, I mean, not proof of cheating, but just sort of circumstantial evidence that he shouldn't be able to do that. He shouldn't be able to move that quickly without calculating. But I mean, this illustrates the difficulty in finding a cheater. 
They only need to cheat on a small number of moves to win a game. They only need help on one or two key positions to get a slight, a very slight advantage over the opponent to win. It's not like he needs a huge advantage because at this level, they're all so good, right? And that makes it incredibly difficult to find people cheating using computers. If I was cheating using a computer, I would need the computer to tell me every single move. And that would be a lot easier to find than a computer find telling you just one move. Now, the chess.com report concludes that they could not prove any over-the-board cheating. Now, they can't state publicly that he cheated over the board without proof, but they did ban him from the game right away after the controversial win against Carlson. So that's kind of like they're saying, yeah, we think he's cheating over the board, but we can't say publicly that he is because... That would be like libel or slander. So we're just going to say that we suspect it. And we're going to basically say we think he's cheating by kicking him out of this tournament. But they can't publicly state that, right? So if you read between the lines, they're basically saying, yeah, we think this guy is cheating, but we can't necessarily say that. So yeah, so the way the way it works is they analyzed a lot of his games in the reports. And they say that we definitely think he was cheating online. And we think he was cheating in over 100 games on online play, at least over 100 games. So I don't know. So anyways, the fallout of this is, is that Hans Niemann has filed a defamation lawsuit against Chess.com and Magnus Carlsen and a couple of other people for $100 million in damages. <laughs> or $100 million. I'm doing the Dr. Evil thing. You can't see because this is audio only, but trust me, I am. <laughs> it's a lot of money. It's a lot of cheddar. So, you know, who knows? It's probably going to be kicked out of court or at least the amount is going to be reduced because that's a fairly absurd amount, but Hey, you never know. You might as well go for the hell Mary, right? If you're going to go, if you're going to go, you might as well go big. So on February, on Thursday of February 23rd, just a couple days ago, that's just like two days ago from, you know, we're rec- when I'm recording this, we had a new development. So FIDE, F-I-D-E, that's the main big boss of chess organizations issued a statement saying that they had a panel write a report about Neiman. The 30-page report has been forwarded to the Ethics and Disciplinary Commission for further consideration. The panel will evaluate the report and make a decision within six weeks. So until a decision is made, the report will be kept confidential. This case is very much ongoing, and you can expect to see more stuff about it in the news as it develops. So, I mean, that... At the end, where does that leave us? There's one simple question. Did Hans Niemann cheat at chess? Well, he definitely cheated for online games because he admitted to cheating for online games. We know that for a fact. We don't yet have proof that he cheated during over-the-board in-person games. So I can't say definitively that he cheated against the world champion. But here's the thing. In my opinion, there's a line. If somebody is willing to step over that line, they are willing to cross that line playing one version of the game, they would be, in my opinion, they would be willing to step over that line on other versions of the game. Just because you're playing on a computer doesn't make it any different. You're playing against other people for cash prizes on a computer. You're stealing money from those people by cheating. You're taking money right out of their pocket. There's no difference between that and walking right into their house and stealing their TV. You're stealing from those people. If you're willing to do that, 
for an online game, I believe a person of that personality would definitely be willing to steal from other people on in-person games as well. I don't think there's any difference. I don't see any distinction between the two as far as whether or not that person is willing to step over that line, right? It takes a certain personality, a certain lack of morals. And I think I've thought about this a lot uh, over the past week or so thinking about this case. And I think, uh, you know, it, it, I think to myself, how could you cheat like that why, how, how could you be capable of cheating like that? Because I wouldn't be able, I would not be capable of cheating like that myself in a game like this, right? I wouldn't even cheat in a game of monopoly, let alone a game where there's cash money, you know, potentially a million dollars on the line. And I think it comes down to self-respect. I think somebody like this, who's willing to cheat like this, doesn't have any self-respect at all. And it, I, I thought, because I came to the conclusion, well, he just doesn't have any respect for other people. And I think, no, that's, that's not it. He doesn't have any respect for himself or herself. You know, we're not talking about anybody specific here. In order to do this, you wouldn't have any respect for yourself because how could you cheat and ruin your reputation like this if you had any self-respect whatsoever? So I think that's what it comes down to. If you don't have any self-respect, then you're willing to step over that line, you know? And um, I, I haven't been a champion at anything, but I did have sort of a similar experience that I, I'd like to relate. I used to play an online game, a first-person shooter called Tremulous. It's a team-based first-person shooter. I actually got really, really good at this. This was like when I was younger. I was in college. I didn't have any kids. I had more free time. I got really good. I got so good at this game that pretty much every time I played it, somebody accused me of cheating using an aimbot. I wasn't cheating. I was just really good at it, right? But over time, it was an open source game, so it was relatively easy to write an aimbot and cheat at the game. At first, there weren't that many, so it didn't matter that much. But over time, there were more and more cheaters. The aimbot, somebody wrote an aimbot for this thing that was free and easy to find. It was super easy to get. And over time, everybody started using it. You know, and at some point it got so bad that you could no longer play the game unless you were using the aimbot. So at that point, I was like, okay, well, I downloaded it to try it out. I only played one match and then I deleted the game. I was like, okay, I never, I never played the game again because it just ruins the game. Like how that's not fun. You know, <laughs> there's something special to winning, losing and overcoming these challenges on your own. Right. And it just... It just seems like it ruins it for not just for other people, but for yourself. You're not getting the experience of overcoming. Like I would rather, if I was a top chess player, I would rather get crushed by the world champion and never play chess again than beat the world champion by cheating because that victory is meaningless. That doesn't mean anything. You haven't accomplished anything, right? So I would rather lose than win by cheating. That's just my personality. But I mean, there's all sorts of people who cheat. So who knows what motivates these people? I'm just speculating here. And again, I'm not talking about anybody specifically. I'm just hypothesizing because I don't want to get sued by somebody who certainly has a lot more money and better lawyers than I do. <laughs> right? <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, so we don't know for sure. And at the end of all, at the end of all this, it is possible that Hans Niemann legitimately won. We don't know for sure that he cheated on over-the-board games. 
So I'm not willing to come out and necessarily say that he cheated for sure, right? Who knows? Anything's possible. I don't know. Who knows? It's it's all speculative at this point. It's an ongoing story, and I'm definitely going to keep my eye on it and see how it unfolds. But I would just like to end on, uh, well, before I end on the fact, I just want to point out again, reiterate that if somebody wins by cheating, that puts their entire career into question. And that player, how good are they really? They might not be good at all. Final thoughts. That's just, I wanted to throw that out there, reiterate that point as a final thought that if they cheated in one game, maybe they're only a 1200 player and they cheated their way all the way up to 2700. Who knows? But I like to end on an interesting fact, something to ponder, something to think about. So during the Sinkfield Cup, Neiman played strongly for the first three rounds. He beat Carlson in round three. Now, because of the cheating allegations, after round three, the event organizers added some anti-cheating measures, such as delaying the broadcast of the chess moves by 15 minutes. After this, for the remaining four rounds, Hans Niemann and a handful of other players played noticeably worse in the remaining rounds. So at the end of the day, is Hans Niemann a cheater? I don't know. I can't say that he is because I don't want to get sued. So you're going to have to decide that for yourself. I can't say definitively that he cheated during this match when he beat the world champion. We don't know for sure. We don't have proof. So we can't say it without proof. But there are some highly suspicious things going on here. So that's all we got for you this case file. Before we get out of here, we've got a product to pitch to you. We've got our Amazon product of the week. And in this time, I'm just going to do chess books in general. There are a ton of great chess books, everything from beginners to intermediate. There's, you know, a lot of the great champions over the years have written chess books, a lot of analysis, a lot of introductory stuff. So if you're interested in chess, you want to find out more, check out the link in the description. There's a lot of great books there. Um, This is an affiliate link. Your purchase helps to support the show and doesn't cost you anything extra. And uh, keep it strange. Thanks for listening, everybody.